Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 34. Genesis 34, and as you do, just... Alright, Genesis 34. We're going to be studying that today together. As you know, we've been walking through. If you're new, we've been going through Genesis. We're moving through that uh, step by step, and we do that over uh, an extended period of time to try to get the whole message of the book. And I think it's just important, as we do, just to remind you, if you're new here, uh, a couple of things that are going on in the study. We have been studying through the life of Jacob for some time. There's all these twists and turns. Jacob's life is one of those, one uh, writer said that his is the school of faith because, I mean, he goes through every single, like, troublesome thing that you could imagine, and you think, good night, I just can't believe all that's taken place. Now, what happens here, and I think it's just important to note this, is that God promised Abraham, and then he promised Isaac, and he promises Jacob, those three in that line, so his grandfather, his father, and now Jacob receives the same promise that he would bless him, and that he would um, not only bless him, but he would make him a great people with a, a, an enormous piece of land, a, a wonderful piece of land that they would be able to live in, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's just a, a, a beautiful picture there. God promised that. And also that he and his family would be a blessing to the nations. And so those things are kind of at the forefront as we think about his life and what is taking place. Now, what takes place also in Jacob's life, just to kind of give you a, a recap of that, Jacob ends up going to outside of the promised land that God had given him. He goes there because he gets in trouble with his brother. His brother says, I'm going to murder him. His mom says, we've got to get him out of town. And so his dad packs him up and sends him off. But he also tells him, while you're gone, back, back to our family that's not in this land, you need to find a wife. Well, he ends up with a, several, a couple of wives, and he also ends up with a number of children, and he has great wealth when he comes back. But it wasn't an easy road. There's nothing about Jacob's life that you say, that's an easy road. Boy, this was a simple thing. Nothing about it says that. But Jacob went through great difficulty. But 20 years later, he comes back. On his way back in, he's really nervous because he knows he's about to meet up with his brother who the last time he saw him wanted to kill him. He's very concerned about that. He comes up. He goes uh, to the land. He's coming up to the land. On his way, he begins to think, how am I going to get everything worked out? He begins to maneuver some things around, but he also prays to the Lord that he would protect him. And God had told him he was going to bring him back to the land. He said, Lord, don't you remember you're going to do this for me? Well, the night before he's about to meet his brother, the Lord attacks him. The Lord wrestles him. The Lord takes him down, really. And it's a, it's a, it's a pattern there, though this fight is going on. And it's like, this is amazing. He prayed for deliverance, and now they're in an all-out battle to the death. And he's doing this with the Lord. And so the Lord is wrestling with him there. And ultimately, he doesn't overcome him, but he touches his side. And it really it leaves Jacob with a limp the rest of his life. He touches his side. And now Jacob from, it goes from like fighting to kind of throw off or restrain the Lord to clinging to him and begging for a blessing. The great shift in his life. You see people all the time think that they, they, they may be in this place of like, just constantly struggling, almost rebelling against God's way, and now he's begging God for a blessing. He's fighting to clinging. He's wrestling now to hold on. And so that's kind of where we left that, and we see him do that. But then he meets up with his brother. His brother kind of, it seems, to has forgiven him of all that he's done. They, they, hold, they hug each other. They weep, all those things. And then Jacob starts taking off to go onto the promised land. And it's just that's kind of where we were left. Now, he travels along, and he comes up to a place called Shechem. And he sets up his camp there. 
There's a little bit about that place that he's going. He sets up there. It, there's something about it. It was a thriving place. There's a place, a, a part of the trade route was there. It was really a city that would be appealing to the eyes, if you will. It kind of leans back to make you think, oh yeah, remember when Lot went to Sodom and he set his camp out there? And then he, he kind of moves closer and closer to Sodom. There's a place, an element there where you're thinking like, this is maybe not the best thing. Why didn't he go on forward and, and not stop there? But anyway, he stops there and he ends up with some horrific situations. His daughter, his only daughter, is raped in that city. It's a very horrendous picture. Chapter 34 is like really sad to read. Not only that, two of his sons, Simeon and Levi, because of what had happened to their daughter, to, to the daughter, they go into the city and kill every man in the city. I mean, this story is like one of those sobering stories. You're like, does this need to be in the Bible? I mean, is this something, what would this be rated? I mean, this is like a horrific scene. And when you see that unfold, it's one of those real examples that God is not hiding from us the darkness that's going on in this family's life and some of the difficulties that are faced and some of the horrific things that happen. There's an element to where as you read this, just to remind you, there's the, the people of God are to beware of worldliness they're to, they're, they're, to, they're to make sure that they don't have an unrighteous, unbridled anger. I mean, that's something you would learn from this. They are to, to seek to be a blessing to others instead of a curse, which is what it kind of appears this morning. But ultimately, of course, we see this and we say, you know what? In our own hearts, we see some of this unrighteous, evil anger and all those things, and yet God has come, Christ came, and he really, and we'll talk about this at the end today, but he stood there and as these unrighteous, angry men crucify him, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And when we think of our own lives and we see our Savior, we're reminded that he will save us from all the horrific things within our hearts and things we act upon. So as we start this morning, if you would just bow with me and pray. Father, I ask today, that You would cause us to want to hear Your Word. Lord, I ask that You would cause us to want to be, be still enough and focused enough to hear from You. I pray by Your Spirit that You would open our hearts this morning, that we might understand what's going on within us too. That we would see this story, but see what, what, maybe, what temptations are drawing us away from You. And I just pray that you would bring us to repentance by the power of your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. So as we start this morning and you look at this in verse 1, we begin, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and he lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now those are the first five verses. They kind of set us up for what's taking place. Again, this is a horrible situation as you see it unfold. We see this in a very powerful way. Now as we start, one of the things you see is Dinah goes out to be with the women of the land. Now that's an important thing and you think, well, why is that important? Because there's something about that that's saying something that we need to hear. It, it's, it's kind of unclear what kind of company she's keeping, but it is apparent there's an element even that sounds like it's the same phrase used when, 
when uh, her, her mother, Leah, went out to see Jacob when she had won a night with him. There's kind of something deceitful in it. There's something that kind of points back to that piece of, or that time, that piece of history. She went out also can sometimes tie to like cult prostitution. There's some things about that. If you kind of unpack that word, that word kind of has this feeling of she is not going out in a good way. She is going out on her own to, to be among the women of the land. It's not really a very beautiful picture as you think about what's taking place. I don't know how many of you have read the book Pride and Prejudice. I haven't. I've tried a couple times. Anna loves that book. I think it's a girl's book, but I think it's a piece of, you know, it's like this great piece of literature. I should read it. I never finish it, but she makes me watch the movies over and over and over. And it's like one of this is a labor of love. No, but anyway, it's a good story. And as it unfolds, there's this sister Lydia in Pride and Prejudice, who's always chasing after the boys. And you're like, good night, she's going to destroy the family. And everybody's kind of sitting there watching her do it. And one of the younger, I mean, one of the daughters says, like, don't let her go alone. She needs a chaperone. She needs somebody watching over her. She's crazy. Well, she almost destroys the family in the book. Is that right, ladies that have read? Yeah, okay. So anyway, I mean, you know, anyway. So but as you think about that, there's something about this that makes you feel like, oh, this is what's taking place. It makes you wonder, where are her parents why aren't they watching over her? She should never be out without a chaperone. She is a young woman going into a hostile city, kind of. An evil city. It's known. The children I mean, of Israel are going to face these people, and they're known for their, their wickedness and their rebellion. So we don't know if she snuck out or what took place, but there's something about this that says she shouldn't be out alone in that culture, in that context, ever. So there's one little step there. You just think, what's going on here now? I think then you go to verse 2 and you see that it, there's this young man, Shechem. He's a part of the royal family, some of the leaders of the city. It's it's kind of, it's very, um, I mean, he would be like a royalty in that city. It wasn't necessarily like a massive city, but he would be royalty there. And he sees her and he takes her and he lies with her. And there's this picture again of rape. It's a forceful uh, thing here where she is put in a place where her, she's robbed of all her dignity she's humiliated her family would be this is just a horrible and sad and just i mean a horrible situation in genesis 15 later like earlier god had said to abraham when this land that you are in there's going to come a day where these people are so horrific that i'm going to to, to when they're they're like sin has reached its limit then I'm going to judge those people. And, and so we know that these are not God-fearing people, and He is one who just, just an open rebellion. And again, He's like one of the leaders of the city, and you think He's to be the example, and He's the exact opposite of the example. And so we see that as it unfolds for us, and I think it's important to note, I want you to see one other passage like this, because it's going to come up again and be faced with, but 2 Samuel 13, if you, have time, if you can just turn there, Second uh, Samuel 13, verses 12 through 16. This is going to happen again in David's family. And one of David's sons, David had many wives, and one of his sons is going to do the same thing to one of David's daughters. And when David's daughter is speaking to the son, she answered him and said, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, could I carry my shame? 
As for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up and go. And she said, No, my brother, for this is wrong. And sending me away is greater than the other you did to me. But he would not listen to her. You see this picture. Again, this is the most horrific situation. And people are faced with this all the time. This goes on all over the world. It's not something, again, the Bible speaks to a lot of things in life and it shows the horrific nature of sin, of just unwielding like restraint. And you see that in this picture and in the story. And even in this story that we just read, one of the things that is gives this guy that we're reading about this morning, you can turn back to your passage that we were reading together, but one of the things that gives him a little bit of credibility in comparison is that he doesn't hate her afterwards and throw her out he actually wants her to be his wife. And we'll see that as it kind of moves forward. This young man has a desire now to marry her, which is different than even David's son. And we see that, and we see it, and you could, there's an element where you say, this is so horrible, could anything good come of it? And you still think, what is his love like? He's so confused about what love is. Love is not that way. Love is kind and tender and merciful. Love wants the dignity of people. They, we want hum, they want the other human to be better after it's over, after their relationship is formed. They want to restore it. That's, that's love. Love is not just this emotional desire. It is an act of the will and choosing to put the other's needs above your own. That is love. I just think it's important to note, but also just as you're looking at the story, I mean, he does, he wants to have a relationship with her. And he goes to his father and says, get me my wife. Get me this young lady to be my wife. And he asks his father to go and deal with this. Now, how is this all going to turn out? We're going to see this as it unfolds. But we, I think it's just wise just to stop and say, there's something about this that says there, there should have been more protection of her. I mean, I think parents need to be, when they read stories like this, there's not just moral stories that you come away with, but there is something, a moral standpoint here when you're looking at this, and, and, and that is that you would want the best for your kids. And I don't mean you protect them from everything in this world. You'll never be able to do that. But you're seeking to help them grow in wisdom and live a wise life. And her unattended was not wise. They should have been watching over and protecting her. She should have been restrained and not going out into the city there's so many things to learn from this story but i would just say you should desire your children's holiness above everything else some parents some parents want their kids to be more successful in the world than they would in their christian life that's a scary thing they spend all of their time trying to make them really successful in the world trumping really growing them up in godliness. And I just think it's wise just to stop and say, this is not a pretty picture. So as we move forward in scene two, as you're, as you're moving ahead in verses five through 12, Hamor asks if his son can marry Dinah. And then basically the boys say, well, there's only one way this can take place. It's through this act of circumcision. So we'll unpack that. But look at verse five. We'll just see here. Jacob hears what has taken place, that his daughter's been defiled, and he remains silent. There's something about this. Now, here's the deal. You could say, Maybe Jacob's silent because he's waiting for his boys to come back in because otherwise he's going to get beat down because he's an old man. 
And so he's just wise. He's like the Godfather sitting back there just silently holding in his emotions until the time is right to strike. Another thing you could say was, one thing young ladies often were less valued in that culture, and his daughter could just be, there's a certain indifference towards not only it's Leah's daughter, and he kind of looks down upon Leah, has never really had a great relationship with her, there could be an element there. We don't really know. There's a certain number of things. There could be a, just a, an aspect of fear because he's thinking, good night. I mean, these, this is a whole city. We're a little family. I can't go crazy right now. They'll completely destroy us. I mean, there's a lot of things going on in this story. But, but you know, when, when this happened with King David, he was noticeably angry. When we, That story I read earlier, I mean, there was an anger that's there. There should be a righteous anger about this situation. There's something about Jacob's almost silence that makes you wonder, why is he not speaking up? Why is he not outraged by what has taken place? But again, he could just be waiting his time until his son's arrived. He could be, as Mike Smith, we're talking earlier, that it could be one of those things where he knows his sons are wild and crazy. If he can just keep this down and not bring it up, they won't do something rash. I mean, there's a lot of questions here, but again, his silence makes you wonder what's taking place. Now, in verse 6, it says, as you're looking at here, this man comes out, Hamor, the father of Shechem, comes out to meet with Jacob, and there's an element to where you think he doesn't even bring up the situation. Maybe he's trying to hide it from Jacob. We don't know, but the situation's not really brought to the forefront. Maybe he didn't think it was that wrong. Maybe his son has done this before. Maybe it was normal in that culture. There's just so many kind of questions as you move forward. But in verse 7, Jacob's boys return. And when they hear, they are outraged. This is right. There is an element in our culture, in your life, as you look at things, when you see unrighteousness, when you see evil, your heart should be broken over it. You should not want to walk in that way. You should not love that. You should not be desensitized to evil. We should be angry at that. There should be a righteous anger for evil. We can't stand it in our world. We hate to see it. We long for evil and we want justice to reign. We want evil to be eradicated and justice to reign in our lives and in our churches and in our world. There's something about that. We should be outraged by these things. And there's truly a deal where the things, and maybe in our conscience over time are just kind of like like just almost burned. They're seared. Things that would just have outraged people 20 years ago do not. And so I think it's just important you just stop and go, wow, we need to see what they're saying here. This should be an outrageous thing and these things should not be done. But in verse 8, he thinks that as we kind of move forward in verse 8, the, the sons of, I mean, sorry, uh, Hamor spoke with them saying, the soul of my son longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. There's something, some element here. He really wants to marry her. He has a di- desire to do so. There, he's maybe trying to make things right. We don't know all the story, but he longs to be with her. And Hamor, in verse 9, wants them to, to intermarry and form deep alliances together. He, he's going to, in verses 10, like as you're kind of moving forward, he's saying, I want us to all be one big happy family, kind of. He's drawing them all in and he's saying, hey, we could make these deep alliances and become almost like one greater people. 
Now, throughout the history of the children of Israel, this would always be condemned. This is the early stages, but it's always known you don't come together with those people. We saw that actually with Jacob's mother said, I don't want this to ever happen. You're never to intermarry with these people. In verse 10, he tells them to dwell with his people, basically. He's telling them, we can trade with us. This is going to be a big financial gain for you. I mean, if you, come on, man, if we put all this together, we could make something great here. He's pushing like the elements of, of pride and desire for greed and wealth and all those things. And not only that, he's saying, we, you can be citizens here. Now, again, God said, this is your land. He's promised this land. And there's this element, too, that you're saying, is this a way to bypass waiting on the Lord? So that we can have it all now. This guy's promising us like Satan promised Jesus. He's promising the whole world without the cross, without the difficulty, without not intermarrying with these people. You're going to see kind of this issue that's kind of taking place in this moment. In verse 11, Shechem, he's kind of at this point where he can't stand any longer. He wants her. He promises to give them whatever they want. In that day, there would have been a standard amount of money given for as a bride kind of price. And he says, look, you name it, I'll give it. He's offering to almost like give a gift on top of that. I mean, this story is like unfolding before us and you're thinking, good night. Now they would certainly be attracted. They're saying, we were going to have a place in this culture, a place in this society, a, a, a place to live, a place to dwell here. He's offering them all of those things. And Jacob, again, along the way, as you're looking at the story, he's silent. You're thinking, what in the world is he thinking? He's not speaking up. In verses 13 through 19, as you move forward, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father, Hamor, deceitfully. Where did they learn that? Have they ever seen any deception before? I mean, if you stop and think about this story, you're like, Jacob is known for his deceiving. Some people interpret his name to mean deceiver. They've been watching dad do business deals their whole life. That's how he does it. He, he's going to be in some way, he's going, to, he's going to trick them. And so they're doing this deceiving him because they've been wrong. Their sister has been wrong. But here's the thing, two wrongs don't make a right. You're looking at this story just because one person's been wrong. It doesn't make you right in making, a, the, making a, a deal like this, deceiving other people, and you see them as this unfolds. They're deceiving them. In verses 14 and 7, they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us, only on the condition that all the males are circumcised that we would do this. They're taking, now what is circumcision? Circumcision was a sign for the people of God that meant that this was, that they are a part of the people of God. They are sons and daughters of God. It was this religious symbol that was tied to their whole identity. They are using that as a kind of a, a way to get to twist things. It's kind of this backwards way that you would take God and His, the people of God and the things of God and you would use them to your advantage. Be like someone saying, you know, sometimes if you run for a political office, everybody gets real religious. You know, they want to stamp on there where they're a member of the church and da 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 da. Is there sometimes? And I'm not saying there's wrong with that, but there there can be when you're saying, I want to use this for my own advantage. They're they're kind of making this deal and saying, okay, well, this is what we'll do. 
we'll come up with this. They're, they're tainting what God had given them as a great treasure. Now, what happens? Shechem and Hamer, they go and sit down and they say, look, all the men of the city, y'all come here and listen up. We have this opportunity to be in a relationship with this family. You remember that family that you passed when you're coming in the city? They're out there and they have all that livestock and all these things and all this privilege. And I mean, they are a wealthy family. If we make a deal with them, we get all that they have. And so they kind of tell them that story and lay all that out. And basically the men are tempted by greed and they say, hey, let's do it. Now as you move forward in verses 25-29, through 29, this is where it gets to a point where you're like, Oh my word, I can't believe the story changes here. But in verses 25-29, Simeon and Levi kill all the men. Now what do we find out? This is, almost, this is shocking. All the men of the city are circumcised and they come in and basically in this moment, Simeon and Levi on the third day, they know there could be infection setting in, there could be all this trouble. This was not like a surgery center. They didn't go into a surgery center. They put them under and they do all these things and try to keep all in fact. They don't do all that stuff. This is like a flint rock and some pain. And so three days later, they're sore and they're sitting there. They're unable to defend themselves. It's like the worst possible time for them to have to encounter anybody. They're laying on the couch there thinking they're not going to make it. And what does Simeon and Levi do? This is a great time to drag my sword out and go in and kill every man in the city because of what they've done. They kill every one of them. It's a massacre. It's, it's not, listen, there, there's sign of circumcision later. People would come into the people of God evangelistically as they hear the, God, hear the, the promise given to the people of God. They would be, be united to the people of God. The males would be circumcised. They would enter in. It was almost like an evangelistic thing where they come into when someone... This is like a horrific situation and it's genocide. They're killing all the males in this place. They're going to take all their women, all their children, and they will bring them in and those people will no longer exist as a people. They destroy everyone. They go and find Hamor and Shechem. They kill them. They bring their sister out, which is apparent she may have been kept, no doubt, captive there for some time. You know, There's so many kind of things going on here, but they go in and destroy all. Now listen... Then they call their brothers, they rally them up, and they say, let's go into the town and take everything. Let's sack the whole city. Let's go and take everything these people have. And so they come together and they, it, they loot the whole city. They destroy it. Later we'll find out people are going to be afraid of them because they're so wildly, just almost like wild people that would go out and destroy people and kill everybody Every male in the place. Now here's the thing. If you know your Bible, you know that later God is going to send His people in. He's going to send them into cities and He will destroy those cities and He will use them as instruments of justice in His hands. But that is not right now. God said 400 years until the iniquity of the Amorite has complete and it's time for me to pour out my wrath. Then I will do this. But that's not now. That's not what is presented now. This is presented as cold-blooded murder where they are killing the whole, all the people, all the males in the city. You see the wickedness of their hearts. Now listen, these are God's people. This is you. This is like a couple of you getting up 
today and going and killing everyone in a city and coming back and saying, hey guys, come help me loot the city. You think that's wild. I mean, it's just amazing. It's so shocking. And you think, what is taking place? Now look what Jacob does. Jacob looks at them and he says, what in the world have you done? Now here's the thing. Jacob has been silent. The only time he speaks up in this whole story is when he comes to a place where he, real, he thinks that he might face some kind of trouble because of their actions. It's not what they've done as much as what it might cost him and what other cities might do to them. People might rally around and come destroy them. It's not really... There, there's, his motivation is for his preservation, not for righteousness at any level. The very kind of... One of those things that kind of shocks you about what's taking place. Now... As we conclude today, I just kind of want to lay out a few things for you that I think are really important to look at in this story. Ready? The first one here, I think that we would say is Jacob does not fight for justice. I don't see that in his story. I don't see that he's not giving adequate kind of uh, supervision over his daughter when she is defiled. He doesn't. He kind of stands there silent. There's something about that that says this is not, a, this is not the way that we should live. The second thing that we would see is these boys kind of walk in the pattern of deception like their father. You know, sometimes, and I, that's not, we can't blame it on him. I mean, somebody, listen, if you sin and you say, well, my dad used to do that, now I do it, you're still held accountable for that. But you do see in this is that he is not, they are not walking in a way that would be honorable. They're following at some level in the footsteps of their father. And they use this deception to hatch a genocide. This is mind-blowing stuff here. But also I think you would see maybe thirdly is you don't use God's gifts, God's church, God's people, what God has done as a way, as a means to get your own way. They, they use that as they're doing this. You're thinking, whoa, what are they doing? And they're using what God has given them, the blessings of God for their own advantage really to corruptly kind of deceive people. Now, the one that I think is really at the heart of everything that's taking place here is that, you know what? Anger. Anger. I mean, are any of y'all ever struggle with that here? Never. Never any anger in your heart. You know, there's a righteous anger, but I rarely ever get there. Do you know that? Righteous anger is not wrong. To look at the situation of what had happened to their daughter, that was not wrong. To condemn that's not wrong. To say that this, there's injustice in the world, and this is happening all over the world. If you were to study right now all the sex trafficking and all the horrific things that are going on around the world, you should cry out and say, this is wrong. This is unjust. This is evil. This is corruption to the core. It's not wrong for them to hate what has taken place. It's not wrong for them to be broken over and to be angry with it. What's wrong? It's, it's wrong when they take that and they begin to go to an unrighteous anger. Have you ever done that? Some way you've been uh, mistreated and so you respond just more angry than the person. They did one thing to you and you fought back with a vengeance and you came out on them in such a horrific way. You know, their righteous anger, their anger kind of started out maybe in a good way and it grew into something so ugly, so perverse that it times 100 beat what had happened. 
They reflect something so horrific. It just amazes you when you look at it. What is the proper response? Is it to take justice or to take, take this into your own hands? Is it always to say, I'll take the law into my own hands? Is that the proper response when something has gone wrong? Now, I just read a couple of passages about anger. Proverbs 29.22 says, A man of wrath stirs up wrath, and one who is given to anger causes much transgression. Ecclesiastes 7.9 says, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Proverbs 15.8, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. James 1, 19 and 20 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, Be angry and do not sin. That's what you, in this story, it's, wrong, it's not wrong for them to be angry, but it is wrong for them to sin. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. It's a very, I think it's very important to see that when you look at your hatred of sin, uh, but, but then you say, I hate sin, but how do you respond? Do you sin in return? When something doesn't go your way, you get angry, you sin more, and you heap more guilt upon yourself because you respond in anger and you feel justified in it. They feel justified in making it a hundred times worse in bringing great wrath on someone and doing this in annihilating people and they feel okay about that. But sometimes, I mean, I, I see that in my own heart personally and I think, I mean, just yesterday I was sitting there and some things didn't go my way at the house and I'm there all alone and I'm just like, oh, I'm just so angry. And at that moment I think, why am I so angry at what has taken place? Such a small offense sent me over the, the top. That just blows your mind when you watch that in your own heart. We see anger running deep within us. You know what? And I mentioned this earlier. Jesus is on the cross and they are screaming out all these horrific things at Him. They are angry people wanting Him crucified, wanting Him dead. And they're screaming out all these angry things and He is saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In reality, we're the ones in the crowd. We're the ones who are angry, and not only sometimes at God or at others or God's people, whatever it may be, and we're crying out all these things. And Jesus, again, His example was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He saw horrific things. The greatest trouble in all the world was dumped on Him. Sin was, He was punished by it. The wrath of God poured out upon Him. And we see in that moment His heart towards those sinful people blows your mind. Jesus came to save His people from the penalty of their sin. From their, their broken situation so that you might be able to be saved. He died in your place for all your sinful hatred heart. And we see it over and over and over again. Now here's the other thing. He came to set us free from the, from the power of that. He really did. He came so that you could walk in a different way. 
to set you free in the present now from unrighteous anger, from constantly be angry and on your heart or whether you acted out in your actions, He came to set us free. Colossians 3 verse 8 says, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Colossians 3.12 says, Put on then, as God's chosen holy ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Looking at the cross of Christ, it really has a way of pushing away that anger. Lastly, God will deal with all of those things. Romans 12.9 says, Leave room for the wrath of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God can deal with unrighteousness and evil and all those things? Do you think that you can be a greater punisher than God? God has shown us in Genesis that He will not let sin go unpunished. The cross shows us that, but in the end, He will punish all evildoers, all those who rebel against Him. Justice will be done. And from this story, I believe you can see that so clear. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You present this story to us. It is dark. It's uncomfortable. It's hard for us to hear sometimes but it's real. Lord, we live in a world filled with all kinds of things. There is not a man, woman, boy, or girl here that is not on the television seen the results of the fall and the brokenness and the injustice and all the immorality and evil and sin and all of those things. We all need to see those as a reminder that we had better understand right from wrong and understand that even in our own sinful, angry hearts that You will judge that. That will either come through You judging Your Son or judging us in the final day. I just pray for those who are here today that are outside of Christ, that know in their own hearts they've seen anger and bitterness and wrath and unforgiveness for years. They know, and I know, that that will be judged either by Your Son or on the day of judgment. Lord, I pray we would repent today and trust in Christ alone. That He might free us from the penalty, but also the power of our angry hearts. In Christ's name, Amen.